We're in Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, and I want to begin by apologizing to Jared. Where's Pastor Jared at? Where are you at? Okay, so I should tell you by way of introduction that Pastor Jared will, I think you've said it several times, he'll say, oh, this chapter is just too big. I can't preach th- this chapter. It's, it's got 60 verses, 50 verses, whatever it is. I don't know how I can preach this chapter. And I'm always like, just do it. You'll be fine. You'll be great. No problem. You can handle it. But this last week, I had this whole sermon in mind. And then I started looking at Matthew chapter 26, and I realized that there are 75 verses in Matthew chapter 26. So I'm going to do the unthinkable Jared, and I want to apologize to you because I never let you do what I'm going to do. But in your absence, I feel like I can just do whatever I want now. (laughs) We're going to spend two sermons on Matthew chapter 26, two sermons on Matthew chapter 27, and somewhere between one and two sermons on Matthew chapter 28. So even though it looks like our series will be done in three sermons, it's actually going to be probably closer to five or six. And today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 to 35 getting us about halfway through the chapter. So a public apology to you, Jared. I know that if I didn't say that, you'd say, he never let me do that. He never let me break it into two. So our sermon today, I'm really excited about. There's never a sermon that I'm not excited about. But this sermon today is titled, Contrast, Contrast, Contrast. And we'll be in the first half of Matthew chapter 26. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, big day today, beautiful day. The sun is shining outside and warming the earth and warming the water, and may the Son of Righteousness, Jesus Christ, shine in our hearts and warm our hearts, turn those stony hearts into fleshly hearts. Father, today's also a big day because we're losing Pastor Jared and Jen is moving on and it's Nathan's birthday and there are many other things that make today a special day. Father, there will never again be a day just like this day. So may we appreciate this day for everything that it brings, for the gift that is wrapped in this day. And Father, as we turn to the text of Scripture, may we appreciate Matthew chapter 26 for the gift that is found therein. We enter now, Father, into the passion of Jesus, His death, betrayal, resurrection, and ascension. Father, I pray that even as we've been giving our attention to Matthew in the 25 sermons up to this point, may we be particularly acutely tuned in for what is taking place in these last three chapters. Father, right here is the crucible of all of Scripture and the crucible of the gospel, the crucible of Christianity. And so may we hear it, may we hear it keenly, may we hear it freshly, and may we hear it personally. Father, you know that I've done my preparation, I've put my time in, and so that I pray today that people would put their time in, that their minds and hearts would be open and attentive and malleable by your Spirit. We look forward to what you have in store for us today, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 26. We have arrived at the seventh and final chapter in our sermon series. We've divided the Gospel of Matthew up into seven chapters. Son, preacher, healer, leader, teacher, seer, and we come now to Matthew chapter 26, 27, 28, our final chapter, Jesus as Conqueror. Jesus as conqueror, but what we're going to discover, and we're going to launch this today, that Jesus will be a conqueror in a most unexpected and unanticipated way. There is a plot twist 
in the gospel that could have never been expected, never been anticipated. We're going to launch that today with our sermon titled, Contrast, Contrast, Contrast. We'll be in the first half of Matthew chapter 26. We've already noted the chiastic structure of the five discourses of the gospel of Matthew. That is now behind us. Matthew chapters 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, that final discourse there, that's behind us now. And Matthew has, as it were, used those five discourses to set up the final act in this marvelous drama that is the life of Jesus, chapters 26, 27, 28, which will tell the story of his death, burial, and resurrection. We're going to spend extra time, as I've already mentioned, on that. And so let's get right into this. Matthew chapter 26, verse 1. My Bible says in, in the New King James, now it came to pass. It came to pass. I love the way that the Kingdom New Testament says this. So this is how it finally happened. You get the sense that all the while we've been heading here. We knew we were coming here. We've noted that after Jesus uh, ident- or the d- identification of Jesus by the disciples in Matthew chapter 16 when he said that, who do you think I am? And they identified him correctly as the, the Christ. He then would say to them, look, I'm going to go and be betrayed. I'm going to go and be killed. I'm going to go and be crucified. The disciples were flabbergasted by this. They were gobsmacked by this. There's no way that the disciples could have conceived of the idea that Jesus as Messiah, would be going to be killed and to be crucified. But that's the way that the gospel of Matthew has been tilting and trending. There's a sense of inevitability. There's a sense of momentum change. We've been heading here, and now we're here. And chapter 26 begins, so this is how it finally happened. The passion of Jesus. And it's appropriate, and it was planned, that we would be arriving at this period in the gospel of Matthew around the Christmas season. I love the way that Bruce Shelley says it in his book, Church History in Plain Language. I'll never forget, I bought this book about 10 years ago, and I read that opening line, the first sentence in that book, and it literally was tattooed into my mind at that point, and it has never left. This opening line, this opening sentence, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. Quite a way to start a book. What a great opening line. And that's just been tattooed into my thinking. Who starts a religion? Who starts a major world religion and has as its major event, as the epicenter of its, of its teaching and the epicenter of its ethic, the humiliation of its omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful God? Who does that? Well, the answer is nobody would do that. That's what I meant when I said there's a plot twist here. There's an unexpected wrinkle in the story of Jesus. Jesus does show up as a conqueror, but he's a conqueror unlike any conqueror the world had ever seen before. He's not a conqueror like Caesar. He's a totally he's not a Babylonian conqueror. He's not an Assyrian conqueror. He is a conqueror from heaven. He's not the Messiah that was expected, but he is the Messiah that was needed. I want to say that again. He's not the Messiah that was expected, but he is the Messiah that was needed. And Shelley says, the only major world religion to have as its central event, the humiliation of its God. And we come here in chapters 26, 27, and 28 to that humiliation, to that portrait where we're going to see the God of Scripture, the Creator God, the God of the Hebrews, humiliated and hung ignominiously on a Roman instrument of cruelty and torture. 
Just this week, I came across this quotation from Gerd Thiessen in his book, The Gospels in Context, Social and Political History in the Synoptic Tradition. And he says it very simply, as a student of ancient history, he says, there is no analogy to the passion narrative in all of ancient literature. There's, no anal- there's nothing like this in ancient literature. No analogy. Nothing is analogous to what's taking place here, where you take your central figure, you take your protagonist, you take God in the flesh, and he wins by all appearances losing, by being hung on a Roman cross. And it's quite funny, I I don't know much about Gerd Thiessen, he's a German theologian, so I decided I'd do a little research on him, Google him, because he was a reference in a book that I was reading, and this picture came up, and I thought, man, anybody with hair like that, he can be trusted. That's Gerd Thiessen, ladies and gentlemen. What a head of hair. And what Thiessen, the theologian, what Thiessen, the historian, says is there is no analogy in the ancient literature to this. Something unique is happening here, something different. Let me just put, let me put a little bit, a few of my cards out on the table right out front. You're going to see this over the course of our next five sermons. No one could have and no one would have written this story. The story of Jesus is the story that if somebody could have written, they wouldn't have. And if they would have, it's it's not possible. The, The story of Jesus, the climax of the story of Jesus is uninventable. In fact, where I'm at right now in my own personal walk with Jesus and my own personal understanding of the faith is that the uninventability of Jesus is, I think, the, the, the most profoundly persuasive evidence of the truthfulness of the Christian message. No one would have written this story. Who puts their omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful God on a Roman instrument of torture? Who makes that up? That doesn't exist in the heart of man. But as we're going to see, it is central to the heart of God. So this is how it finally happened. Our sermon today, contrast, contrast, contrast. And in the first half of Matthew chapter 26... We're going to see three vignettes, three instances of contrast. And to my mind, this is the way, very clearly as I've been reading over Matthew chapter 26, this is the way that Matthew wanted his gospel to be understood. I'm going to do my best to try and tell you what I think Matthew was doing and what Matthew was saying as he introduced this greatest of all plot twists, the death of the Messiah. Let's read the first five verses together. And this is how it finally happened. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, that long sermon, Matthew chapter 23, 24, 25, he said to his disciples, you know, you know that after two days is the Passover. You're Jews. You know what season it is. You know. You also know that the Son of Man, let's just pause right there. That Son of Man language is lifted straight out of the book of Daniel. This was Jesus' favorite term for himself. Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus spoke about the return of the Son of Man in glory. In Matthew chapter 25, when the Son of Man comes, he will separate those on his right and those on his left. The Son of Man, the Son of Man. In Jewish thinking, in Hebrew thinking, the Son of Man is the quintessential power figure. He's the guy that shows up and thwarts the overtures of the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 and 8. 
The Son of Man is a figure not to be trifled with. He is powerful. He is mighty. He comes with angels and strength and glory and majesty. The Son of Man lifted straight out of Daniel. But what Jesus says next is a square circle. It's a wet desert and it's a dry ocean. It is oxymoronic. It doesn't make any sense. You know, because you were Jews, that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. What? It's a square circle. A crucified Messiah is an absurdity. It's internally incoherent. It's illogical. And not only is it illogical, it's impossible. Because a Messiah, by definition, is is a deliverer, is a mighty warrior. He is not himself delivered. He inflicts punishment. He inflicts uh, judgment. He does not receive punishment and judgment. The Son of Man will be delivered to be crucified. Jesus has been using this talk ever since Matthew chapter 16. The disciples do not grasp it. They lack the theological, social psychological capacity to grasp the idea of a Messiah who's killed. And not just killed, Jesus, Jesus says, not just killed, not just have a, a sword run through him in the heat of battle, but crucified. The height of Roman imperialism and power and cruelty and humiliation. The Son of Man, this powerful, mighty, glorious, majestic figure, will be crucified. Totally, completely, utterly nonsensical and impossible. It doesn't even make sense. Jesus might as well have been speaking Spanish. The language did not register with the disciples. It's a certainty. It wouldn't have registered with any first century Jew. Verse 3. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the son-in-law of Annas. He is one of the two high priests that are alive or around in Jesus' ministry period. They plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him, but they said not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people. The concern of the high priests and of the Sadducean aristocracy was that things not get out of hand. They were concerned about Jesus. They had seen that Jesus had won the heart and the attention and the affection of many people. And Jerusalem was a city of not more than about fifty or 60,000 at the time. And on the, uh, the Passover week, it could swell to as many as maybe 200,000. Right, so this is a massive influx of people. And many of the people that would come into Jerusalem would be rural Right, rural Jews that have traveled. And Jesus' ministry has been largely a rural ministry. And the, the religious leaders were not stupid. They could see that he had largely won the attention and affection of the rural peoples. And they said, man, we cannot make a scene of this with all these extra people here. It will be hard to control. It could get out of hand. And the primary concern of the Sadducean aristocracy and the high priest was to keep the peace. So they said, yeah, 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 we're going to deal with that guy, but we'll do it at a time that's more politically expedient. We don't want to do it during the feast. In these opening chapters here, these opening verses here, Matthew chapters 1 to 5, we see this fascinating contrast. Here's the first of three contrasts. And I want you to notice that Matthew sets the stage with this contrast. Notice. First of all, Jesus is planning a meal and... The religious leaders are planning his death. 
There's planning on both sides. But notice the contrast in the planning. Number two, Jesus has just said that he will give his life. The Passover is coming. The Son of Man will be crucified. I will give my life. As contrasted with, they were plotting, the religious leaders, how they might take his life. Number three, Jesus tells the truth. The Son of Man, though it is impossible for your first century mind to, Jewish mind to wrap your mind around this, he will go and be crucified. He will tell the truth, unpopular though it be, and incomprehensible though it be, and they will use trickery to achieve their goal. Number four, they said, hey, we can't let this happen at the feast because of political expediency. Jesus says this will happen at the feast because of theological significance. Jesus will be personally faithful to God and they will use political power and machinations to try and achieve their ends. And finally, number six, we are introduced here to Caiaphas, the high priest... But in fact, Jesus is the true high priest. And Caiaphas is little more than an imposter that has been set up by Rome. There's no doubt that Matthew is purposefully creating a contrast here. There's planning, there's planning. There's the giving of life, there's the taking of life. There's personal faithfulness, there's political expedience. All the way down the line, Matthew is saying, look, pay attention. Two very different things are happening here. This is the way the world works. This is the way God works. Contrast number one. Now, we're going to look at three such contrasts, and let's go now. Oh, let's actually know. What's the takeaway from the first contrast? We're going to take away one lesson from each of these contrasts, and here it is. Ultimately, and that's a key word there, that's an operative, very important word in this, ultimately, God's plans will succeed, and the plans of wicked men will fail. Can the church say amen? Now, notice that the word ultimately occupies a modifying context here, a modifying uh, purpose. There are certainly instances, many of them, hundreds of them, sometimes even in my own life, where my plans triumph over God's plans. Can anybody here testify that occasionally God does not get His way in your life? But I want to tell you this, even though there are instances, even though there are, there are situations in which it looks as though the evil are prospering, it looks as though the wicked men will prevail. This is one of the major laments of the Psalms. The psalmist again and again says, God, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the evil prosper? I want to tell you that even though there are instances and situations, whether it's despotic dictators or unscrupulous businessmen, or even in my own life where I am unfaithful in things great and small, ultimately God's plan and God's will will succeed over the wicked devices of mankind. Can you say amen? Ultimately, there will be a resolution. Just today in our Sabbath school class, in our, in our teen uh, youth Sabbath school class, we were talking, we were looking at the story of Jonah. And in Jonah chapter 2, it says that the wickedness of Nineveh came up before the Lord. And I asked the young people in the class, I said, look, does that make you uncomfortable or does it make you happy? What's your emotional reaction to the idea that wickedness comes up before God? I don't know how that makes you feel. It does, and the young people pointed this out, they did a very good job. It does make me slightly concerned because if all wickedness is coming up before the Lord, that means that mine is coming up. But it also gives me a peace and a, and a hope and even a kind of tranquility that all the wrongs will ultimately be made right. 
There is so much injustice, so much oppression, so much taking advantage of happening in the world today, whether environmental or business or political or ethical or sexual. People are using and manipulating their power over others. And I take great comfort knowing that when it's all done, when the dust is settled, God's plans will succeed over and above the wicked plans of men and their oppressive, unjust ways. Matthew opens by saying there were men and they had a plan. And they were plotting and they were strategizing, not at the feast. But here's Jesus in this quiet, secret, Passover, planning, strategizing, announcing. The plans of man and the plans of God are coming into direct conflict and contrast here. And Matthew wants you to see it. Let's go now to our second point of contrast. We'll read beginning in verse 6 down to verse 16. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask, a very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant. They were outraged. They said, well, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and, and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not always have. For in pouring this fragrant oil upon my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Scene one in our second contrast. Here's scene two. Then, in the aftermath of this scandalous event, one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give to me if I deliver him to you? Notice that word has already come up twice now. Jesus says the Son of Man will be delivered. Judas Iscariot now becomes the vehicle or the means by which that deliverance will take place. I will deliver him to you. And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. That is to say the price of a slave. So from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Here's our second scene. And it's actually two scenes. Just as with the first contrast, the scene of Jesus quietly planning with his, with his disciples and the scene of the high priest and his compatriots in Caiaphas' house planning, plotting, strategizing. Contrast. So here's a woman, a nameless woman who in an act of supreme love and devotion and adoration embarrasses herself socially. And the next scene that we see is a disciple who we know. He's a known disciple. His name is Judas, and he's securing his future. These alabaster flasks were, were, were quite expensive, and they were not only expensive, the, 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 the alabaster stone's quite soft, easy to form into different ornaments and statues and flasks and little things, but they have found flasks just like this one that would have been very similar to the one that the woman would have had. And what would happen was is they would take ointment, expensive ointment. The particular ointment here, it doesn't say it in Matthew, but in the other Gospels it says it was spikenard, which is a very costly, expensive, essential oil from India. And you would you put that in the flask and then you would seal it with some sort of amber or even a wax that would harden. And the idea was is that it, sometimes it was, you, you couldn't just open the lid. It's not like they had screw technology. So in order to get the, the, the stuff out, you had to break it. 
But this was worth huge amounts of money. In fact, in many cases, these flasks containing very expensive ointment would be passed on generationally. They would be given to the next generation to the next generation like a nice painting or an expensive ornament or something, uh, maybe some jewelry. They would be passed on because there was huge value in them and you didn't want to... It was only a one-off. You broke it and you used it at an important event or a burial or something. So, so there's, a, there's a little bit of wastefulness going on here. That's the way the disciples perceive it. They're like, man, that's worth a lot of money. Now let's talk about the contrasts that are taking place here. First of all, we have a nameless woman. Matthew does not name her. Versus a disciple whose name we know and we know well. A trusted disciple, Judas Iscariot. Now here's one of the tricks. One of the problems in reading this story and almost any biblical story, and I was saying this to the young people in Sabbath school this morning, is that you have to forget that you know how the story ends. You have to unknow, you have to forget, at least momentarily, that you know that Judas is the betrayer. You have to enter into the experience of the disciples who are seated around that table and who cannot imagine that one of them would become a betrayer, and they couldn't have imagined that it would be Judas. None of them could imagine themselves as the betrayer. We're going to see that incredulity in just a moment. But you have to enter into this story and just clear your mind from the knowledge of what's going to happen. This is a disciple that we know. This is a disciple that we trust. Judas. Judas. So there's a contrast between a nameless woman and a named, trusted, known disciple. Number two. The woman is the only one in the story who gets it. And it's, it's hard to avoid the sense that Matthew is painting women in an extremely favorable light at the end of his gospel. This woman gets it. None of the men get it. When the men are fleeing, Mary will remain by the body of Jesus. When the men don't believe, the women will discover the body. When the men are hiding for fear, the women are announcing. I mean, it's really hard to avoid the idea that Matthew is purposefully telling a story in which feminine spirituality should be celebrated. And I love this. Because this was a man's world, so much more than our world today. You know, we have something that loosely looks like equality, and it's basically equality except in the economic realm and maybe the governmental realm. But it's something that approximates equality, not in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, a woman was the equivalent of a second-class citizen in many regards. And we've already talked about one of the criterion for historical veracity is the, the, the criteria of embarrassment. If something's recorded that's like, man, I wouldn't have made that up. And, and here at the end of Matthew's gospel, it just sounds like the truth. It just has the ring of truthfulness and veracity. Why would a woman be the only one that gets it? All the disciples are clueless, but a woman gets it? And not just any woman, but a woman in the other gospel accounts of ill repute. A woman who, not in the Matthew account, but in the other accounts, l- lets her hair down. That was a, a very sensual act in the Near East, to to let your hair down, and then begins to to anoint and wash. I mean, there is a, you're like, you wouldn't make that up. This is is socially not, there's an impropriety here. There's a scandal here. There's a sensuality here, but Jesus receives it. He doesn't receive it as a sensual act. He receives it as an act of devotion. She's not giving it as a sensual act, but it was perceived that way. There is something really beautiful about the quiet, faithful, 
devoted obedience of a woman of God. Men are often in the limelight, such as the case this morning. The men are the presenters, and the men are the preachers, and the men are the upfront, and the men are the governors, and the men. But I tell you, there's something happening in Scripture. There's this, there's this swirl of, of, of authenticity in, 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 in affirming women at the end of Matthew's gospel. It's inescapable. And I just want to say to the women out there today, you need to be comfortable in your own feminine skin, in your spirituality, in your connection with Jesus. It doesn't have to look like my connection with Jesus. It doesn't have to look like your husband's or your brother's connection with Jesus or your father's connection with Jesus. God made both men and women in his image. Can the church say amen? And there's something really beautiful about the humble, quiet, service-oriented, feminine aspect. And I love the fact that Matthew highlights it. The men go out and do their bike riding, and the men go out and do their fishing trips, and the men go out, but often the women are home with the children, home, dutifully, quietly, passionately doing the thing that needs to be done, while the men often do what they want to do. And you know I'm telling the truth. This woman is doing what needs to be done, while everybody else in the house is having a party conversing and talking and socializing and doing the things that, that, you know, the stuff that wants to be done, but there's something that needs to be done. And what needs to be done in Matthew 26 is done by a woman. And not only is it done by a woman, she is then held in contempt for doing it. By expressing her devotion in her own feminine way. She's held in contempt. Notice this. She's anointing for death. Judas is betraying to death. She is publicly rebuked. What wastefulness! As the aroma and the fragrance of her act of devotion began to creep out, she, people were looking at her devotion, her devoted act, and they were holding her in contempt. Everybody in the room held her in a kind of contempt except for Jesus. And it's not difficult to imagine here on number three that Judas would have been privately affirmed by the religious leaders when he came around and said, hey, look, what, what, I'll deliver him into your hand. What do I get? And they said, okay, then negotiate 30 pieces of silver. And you, it's not difficult to imagine that a very masculine, firm, fraternal handshake would have been extended to Judas and say, Judas, you're doing the right thing. Good on you, mate. You're doing the right thing. There would have been a kind of fraternal acceptance. Judas, this thing's getting out of hand. You and I know he's not a Messiah figure. And and Judas is conflicted because he thinks it, he doesn't quite know what to think, but it's not difficult to imagine that there would have been the fraternal acceptance and the affirmation of his decision to do the right thing. The woman grasps the situation. Nobody else in the room does. This is maybe my favorite point of contrast. If, as the historians tell us, these alabaster flasks full of costly ointment could be passed on generationally because they were so valuable, they were a kind of economic security. In the same way that an expensive painting or a piece of jewelry might be passed on generationally, don't let that go, don't let that go. No, that's a family heirloom 
This woman takes something that might have been handed to her from a grandmother or a great-grandmother, and she takes it, and she knows that this could be sold for a cost. She knows. It's not like she's stupid. She does, not that she doesn't know that it's worth a lot of money, but I love this. She takes no thought for her financial future when, Je- when something needs to be done for Jesus. She takes no thought for her financial future. Beloved, that is probably not true of most of us. When something needs to be done for the kingdom, do we take no thought for our financial future? Now, I am certain that we return a tithe and offering. I'm certain of that. I myself return tithe and offering, and I expect the same of you. I'm certain that you give offering and that you return tithe. Me too. But it could not be said of me with accuracy that when David found out about that situation, when David heard about that need, he made an offering that was so big, so magnanimous, that you could say justifiably he was taking no thought for his financial future. He was all in for the kingdom. I'm in for the kingdom, but I'm not all in financially. My suspicion is you probably are similar to that. You're in. You're in. This woman was all in. As contrasted with Judas, who has spent two years with Jesus and he's increasingly frustrated, two to three years, he's increasingly frustrated with Jesus, and he's thinking to himself, man, this Messiah ship is sinking. He can read the handwriting on the wall. This guy's going to end up on a Roman cross. I know where this is going. Another doomed Messiah, another failed Messiah. I need to secure my future. So he's going to try and He's going to try and, 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 and retain as much of his investment as he can. And Matthew makes the point. Look, someone is lavishly, almost wastefully, in an act of devotion, throwing their worship on Jesus. Someone else is trying to salvage any residual investment they can get out of the last two to three years. Hey, how about 30 pieces of silver? Maybe it started something like this. I, I need 100 pieces. No, 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 100 is too much. We'll give you 20. No, 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 I need 80. No, we'll go 25. No, I need at least 70. We'll go 30. That's our final offer. He was hoping to get 100. He was hoping to secure his financial future. Okay, 30. Number three, wasteful, or number six, wasteful love and Judas' calculated departure. Another point of contrast. What's the lesson that we take from this second instance of contrast in the opening verses of Matthew chapter 26? Ultimately, friends, there's that same qualifier. Ultimately, heartfelt devotion and worship will triumph over false and shallow religion. Can the church say amen? The indignation at the the, the expense that was lavished upon Jesus was a farce. It It was a joke. Oh, this might have been given to the poor. By the way, that's what Jesus means when he says, are you kidding? The poor have been here all along. You suddenly have an interest in the poor right now. And the poor have been here for a long time, and they're going to be here for a long time. And you suddenly have this great big interest in the poor. He was calling out their hypocrisy. Friends, I want to tell you this. The show of religion when others are looking, oh, that might have been given to the poor. And Jesus sees your checking account. And Jesus sees your savings account, and he's like, well, what about the money that's in there now? You haven't given any of that to the poor. Why do you worry about what they're lavishing upon Jesus? 
Friends, at the end of the day, hypocritical, shallow religiosity will not prevail. But what will prevail are those that in true devotion and in true worship give themselves wastefully and unreservedly to Jesus and His kingdom. Jesus is not fooled by our caricatures of religion. He is not fooled by the overtures, by our, by our pious words that are said in public situations to endear us to the hearts of those around us. Jesus is not fooled by hypocrisy. Jesus is not interested in our words so much as he's interested in the authenticity and the sincerity of our actions. Wasteful and contempted though they, contemptuous though they be in the eyes of onlookers, a little bit religious, aren't you? I went again this last week, did something I said I wasn't going to do. I went and saw Hacksaw Ridge a second time. I thought, man, once is enough. It was a great movie, but I don't need to see all that again. There was a beautiful non-Adventist family that wanted to go see it, and I said, yep, I'll go. Let's go see it. Went and saw it a second time. In fact, I'm actually really glad that I did because the sermon for next week is built off of an insight that I got while watching Hacksaw Ridge yesterday, two days ago. Next week's sermon is titled, Swords and Lords. Swords and Lords. And it, it was a tremendous insight that God gave me while watching that. But I tell you, Desmond Doss looked like a damned fool. His religion was a little too extreme, a little too wasteful, a little too legalistic, a little too ridiculous. The woman looked ridiculous too. And I want to say... That if people don't think you're a little ridiculous, it's entirely possible that your religion is not sufficiently fragrant to God. If people don't see us as a little weird, as a little backward, as a little excessive, as a little extreme, as a little strange, if we kind of look just like everybody else and we get along just kind of like everybody else, it's entirely possible that our religion is just enough to keep us religious in our community, but is not a sweet fragrance to the heart of God. Ultimately, heartfelt devotion and worship will triumph over, follow and, or over false and shallow religion. Now, let's read next. Let's read what happens next. Verse 17, we find ourselves in the Passover meal. Now, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and they said to him, what do you want us, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand, which is fascinating because Jesus has said repeatedly, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. The disciples should have sensed that something... My time is now here. My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. We don't know who this person is, but Jesus had made a previous and prior arrangement. And he says, go to that place. Here's his address. You can Google it. Get there. Get the, get the, get the meal ready. So the disciples did it. Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. This is a private meal. Now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This is hardly like good social conversational fodder. Right? This is not like light talk. Hey, how's the weather? How are those new sandals you got, Peter? 
Comfortable? No. Assuredly, I'm telling you the truth. One of you, there's only 12 there, one of you will betray me. And I love this, verse 22. They were exceedingly sorrowful. That's a key phrase. That phrase, exceedingly sorrowful, is going to come back to us next week when Jesus goes into Gethsemane and he says to his disciples, I am exceedingly sorrowful. We're going to come back to that phrase next week. They were exceedingly sorrowful. And each one of them began to say to him, Lord, Lord, is it I? I love this. Yes, they're clueless. And yes, they don't appreciate the the wasteful love of the woman at at, at Simon's feast. But at least there's enough self-distrust that they genuinely wonder, is it me? Is it me? He answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. No doubt this was the dish of bitter herbs that was eaten at the Passover meal. There's no mention of the lamb eaten here. It's very likely that the Passover lamb would be slain a day or two later and that Jesus is holding a Passover in advance. He's holding a Passover early because he knows that the true Passover lamb will be slain. There's no mention of the eating of the lamb here or the killing even of the lamb. But he says, he that dips his his hand with me, and very likely there would have been a a cup there or a dish there with bitter herbs and oil, and he he would have taken his bread and he would have scraped it into those bitter herbs. Verse 24. I'm getting a timer here. It's telling me I need to stop preaching, but I'm not done yet. Clock? Ah, I just ignored it. I'm in control of my phone. It's not in control of me. I hope you can all say that same thing. Is it me? And he said, he said, uh, he said, and he answered and said to them, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would be good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, and this is key. And Matthew gives you this little hint. He just drops this little linguistic hint in there. Notice the hint. Rabbi, is it me? Notice the difference. Did you, did you see it? Did you catch it? When the other disciples respond in incredulity and self-distrustful inquiry, Lord, is it me, Lord? Master? Master? Is it me? And then Jesus says, there was obviously one there that was not inquiring. Because Jesus says, it's he that dips his hand with me in the dish. And perhaps at just that moment, Judas had had his hand in the dish, or perhaps not. Maybe it had been just a general reference to the meal at, in, in general. But he says, Rabbi, not Lord, not Master, just teacher. You already get the sense that Judas' affections are withdrawing from Jesus. And Matthew makes the linguistic point. Everybody else is calling Jesus Lord. Confused and mistaken though they be about the nature of Jesus' mission, he's still their Lord. For for, for Judas, he has done the deed already. He's made the arrangement and he can no longer conscientiously call Jesus Lord and Jesus knows it and Judas knows it and here's this little betrayal of intent. Teacher, is it me? And this is another phrase that's going to come back to us two more times in the Passion narrative. It is as you say. You said it. You said it. Jesus is going to stand before the high priest and he's going to say to the high priest, we'll get, this, we'll get there next week. You said it. 
And in a couple weeks, Jesus is going to stand before Pilate when we get there, and he's going to say to Pilate, you said it. We'll pick that up later. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them and he said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, you will not drink of this, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go with you before, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, uh-uh, uh-uh, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you this night, before the dawn comes, before the roosters start crowing, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Several things here. Let's talk about the Passover meal and what's taking place here. First of all, Passover was, let me go back here. Passover was the great Jewish festival of freedom and deliverance. Passover hearkened back to the very dawn of the Israelite nation when the angel of death passed over and the 10th plague fell horrifically on Egypt. And they went out and went through the Red Sea to the Mount Sinai, and ultimately on their way to the promised land. So, so Passover is this great Jewish feast that had been celebrated for more than a thousand years, a feast of freedom and a feast of deliverance. And Jesus does something really fascinating here. He takes the Passover feast and he repurposes it. He takes this feast that had been invested with, with more than a millennium of of theological and social and cultural investment, and he takes all of that. Yes, freedom. Yes, deliverance. Yes, all of that. But then he adds some wrinkles that are really fascinating. Look at what N.T. Wright says. Jesus was drawing into one event a millennium and more of Jewish celebrations. The Jews had believed for some while that the original Exodus pointed on to a new Exodus in which God would do at last that which He long, had long promised. He would forgive the sins of Israel and of the world once and for all. Sin, a far greater slave master than Egypt had ever been, would be defeated in the way God defeated not only Egypt but also the Red Sea. And now Jesus sitting there at a secret meal in Jerusalem was saying by what He was doing, as much as by the words that He was speaking, this is the moment, this is the time And it's all because of what's going to happen to me. He wraps that thousand plus years of Jewish significance into this Passover feast. And then he repurposes the bread and the wine and the bitter herbs. Notice Craig Keener here. The disciples could not guess that their teacher's death was a part of God's sovereign plan. Remember, you have to read the story as if you don't know the outcome. Sit there with the disciples and find yourself troubled and and confused by his words. Pretend like you don't know how the story plays out. They could not have imagined that the good news would have something to do with this Jesus, their beloved friend and teacher and rabbi and Lord, hanging on a Roman cross. Jesus repurposes the bread and the grape juice and the bitter herbs. They now point to his death. Back to Keener. He says here, Jesus interprets the food elements in a strikingly new way. 
For centuries, the Jews had eaten the bitter herbs and the, the unleavened bread, and they had partaken of the juice. But, but Jesus here, he reorients them. He takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he says, this bread is my body. They would have been like, what? And this juice is my blood. Slowly but surely, you would hope that, that some sense of, of cataclysm and doom is beginning to seep into the disciples' consciousness. But again, their first century uh, sensitivities and their first century prejudices prevented them from even embracing the idea that a Messiah could be killed. But Jesus is giving them in advance. He's announcing to them what is coming and what will be by instituting the Passover service. Jesus says deliverance is coming. And that which separates God and his people will be split. There's a fascinating little element in this, and I'll just mention it now, maybe tease it out a little bit later. After the first Passover, the Red Sea separated the promised land and God's promises from his people. And so it was split. God split the thing that separated him from his people. In Matthew chapter 27, when Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, the veil of the temple will split. And the veil was the thing that separated the people from God. Because all the people had to be outside of the temple. They had to be outside. Only the priests could come into the holy place. And then only the high priest could come into the most holy place. And so even though it was a point of access, it was also a point of, 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 of uh, exclusivity. And it was forbidden. You couldn't just go waltzing into the most holy place. But when that splits... When the veil between the holy and the most holy place splits in the temple, God was saying that thing that separates us is split. And in a really deep theology that Matthew certainly understood, but the disciples don't have a clue about, the New Testament teaches that the veil is the very flesh of Jesus. And Jesus, following his crucifixion, when the Roman rule, when the Roman centurions were just probing to see if, in fact, he was dead, they, they split his side. The flesh, the veil. Jesus' manhood is now the Jesus' death and his incarnation and his manhood now splits, and the thing that formerly had separated God and man is now gone. The veil is split. Jesus' flesh is split. The Red Sea is split. This is all Passover language, and Jesus is repurposing Passover. So here's our final point of contrast. And there's actually about 20 of these, but I'm only going to give you the first five today. We'll give you the next 10 to 15 next week. Here's the first five. First of all, the point that we made about exceedingly sorrowful. The disciples are exceedingly sorrowful. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Jesus will soon be in Gethsemane, exceedingly sorrowful. We'll pick that up next week. Jesus is certain about betrayal. One of you will betray me. I tell you the truth. There is uncertainty among the disciples. Number three, Jesus' submission, but Peter's pride. Jesus' submission to the will of the Father, Peter's pride. This will never happen to you. Number four, Jesus' reliance on Scripture. I've read in the Scriptures in Zechariah, when the shepherd is struck, the the flock will be scattered. Peter's reliance on self and the other disciples' reliance on self. No, 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 no. We're not going to let that happen. Jesus is confident of his resurrection. He says, when I rise, I will go before you into Galilee. But the disciples don't even grasp the resurrection. Of course, they don't. They don't grasp the death either. Here's our third and final, ultimately. Third takeaway from the third contrast. 
ultimately Jesus' death and resurrection will win over prideful hearts and minds. Can the church say amen? God does not drive with force. He draws with attraction. He draws, not drives. And we're going to pick this up. In fact, we're going to see this in 27. We're going to see it in 28. This is going to be the big theme. In fact, this is the central theme, I think, of all of Scripture, that God is not driving us to an end. He is drawing us to Himself. We'll see that in greater detail as we move forward. Again, N.T. Wright, a a few last slides here, and I'll let you go. I love this point that N.T. Wright makes. The theories about why Jesus died, so-called theories of the atonement, they're like maps and old photographs of a mountain taken from a distance. A theory of atonement. A theology of atonement. They may be accurate, these theologies and theories, in their own way, And they're helpful particularly when it's cloudy and you can't see too much for the moment. You can't see the mountain summit. But they're not the same thing as climbing to the top yourself. Oh, this is a great point and I hope you won't miss it. Theories of the atonement and theology around the cross is one thing. It's what religious people do. We look at Scripture and we come up with ideas about it. There's two kinds of words. God's words and man's about words, excuse me, God's words and man's words about God's words. These are not inspired. These are. But here's the key. These are not just to be appreciated and affirmed theologically. In fact, I think I've got that up here. Jesus' death and resurrection are not to be merely appreciated and affirmed theologically. That's not what's going on here. The illustration that N.T. Wright uses is, yeah, it's one thing to look at a map. It's one thing to look at a photograph to appreciate a mountain from a distance. He says it's an entirely different thing to climb the mountain yourself. There is a perspective in climbing the mountain yourself that a photograph could never give, that a map could never give, that a topography could never give. And friends, I want to tell you, when you experience the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus by the Spirit in your own life, it's a very different thing than having a theological opinion about the death of Jesus. It's night and day. It's the difference looking at a picture of a mountain, looking at a painting of a mountain, looking at a map of a mountain, and standing on top of the mountain. One is a theology of observation. The other is a personal experience of being with Jesus. They are meant to be The death and resurrection of Jesus are meant to be and must be experienced personally. And by the way, no one develops this theology more fully than the Apostle Paul. Look at this. This is Matthew in Matthew chapter 26, verse 35. Peter gets the story wrong here. He'll later get it right, but he gets it wrong here. This is how how our last verse ends today. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Okay, don't miss this. This is so awesome. This is where the big contrast comes in here unsurprisingly, Peter had the story all wrong. Peter announces with confidence. Peter announces with certainty. Peter announces and says, I will die with and for you. He had the story all wrong. The good news is not me dying for Jesus. It's Jesus dying for me. The good news is not your sacrifice. Impressive though it may be to you, 
Even the only person, the only person in the story other than Jesus who actually makes a substantive wasteful sacrifice is the woman who breaks the alabaster flask. But even that is only a response to what she knows is the real sacrifice. That's the sacrifices that Je- that's the sacrifice that Jesus is making. Your sacrifice is nothing. In fact, you make no sacrifice. It's not even possible for you to sacrifice for God because everything you give is returned to you in earnest. I mean, think about that philosophically. You cannot make a sacrifice to God. Joel Marshall was up here. He said he gave seven years in the mission field. Seven years in the overseas mission field. Was that a sacrifice, Joel? Probably the best time of your life. You've got a wife there. You have a beautiful son. You cannot make a sacrifice for God. Oh, you could take all your retirement money, your $150,000 you've got all stored up. You're going to buy whatever. And you could, just, you could just give it. I'm not advising you to do this. I'm not a financial advisor. But if you want to do it, you do it. If you, if you pour that money into the church, you say, oh, I made a big sacrifice. You didn't make a sacrifice. You made an investment. You say, oh, yeah, I... Oh, man, these stories drive me crazy. I used to tell them myself. People get up and they say, well, you know, I could have been an actor, but I gave it all up for Jesus. Oh, I could have been a rock musician, but I gave it all up for Jesus. Yeah, I could have had an amazing life. I could have been awesome, but I gave it all up for Jesus. Oh, really? Is that the story? That's the good news? The good news is how much you gave up for Jesus. How lucky he is to have your amazing sacrifice. Friends, Peter got the story wrong. I will die with and for you. And you and I sometimes get the story wrong. I want to tell you today, the story is not your sacrifice. The story is Jesus' sacrifice. And anything that you might be doing in response to that is not a a sacrifice, my friends. It's an investment. It's an investment in the kingdom. The good news is not our dying for Jesus. It's Jesus dying for us. Paul developed this theology profoundly, and he says that he, he captures this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. This is a verse that many of us know well. I have been crucified with the Messiah. Yes, yes, I died with the Messiah, but not in the sense that Peter was saying. This is where Paul is saying, I died experientially with Jesus. Jesus is the one that died. The good news is not my martyrdom. The good news is not my death. The good news is not how faithful you are. The good news is how faithful Jesus was. I have been crucified with Messiah, Paul says. I am, however, alive. By some miracle of grace, I remain alive. But it isn't me any longer. It's the Messiah who lives in me. And the life that I do still live in the flesh, miraculous though it be, I live within the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Anything you have ever done for God, you have done as a response to his faithfulness. The little story in Scripture is your faithfulness, your love, your worship, your devotion. And the big story in Scripture is God's faithfulness to humanity and God's faithfulness to you. The gospel is not about our faithfulness. It's about Jesus' faithfulness unto death. That's the story. That's the Christmas story. Our devotion, our worship, our obedience are but a response to His amazing faithfulness to us. I want to disabuse your mind of the notion that you are making sacrifices for God. You cannot make a sacrifice for God. Only an investment. Contrast, contrast, contrast. 
we see the plotting of the evil men and the planning of Jesus in the Passover. We see the woman lavishly, wastefully, wantonly throwing her affection on Jesus and her worship on Jesus with Judas carefully plotting his departure, securing his financial future. We see Peter's prideful arrogance that he will die for and with Jesus. And we see Jesus' humble submission to the will of the Father. Contrast, contrast, contrast. This is what we've learned today. Ultimately, God's plans will succeed and the plans of the wicked men will fail. Can somebody say amen? Number one. Number two, ultimately heartfelt devotion and worship will triumph over false and shallow religion. Can the church say amen? Friends, I just want to urge you to be a little weird for Jesus. Not for the sake of being weird, but allow your devotion to spill over. And if somebody doesn't think you're a little weird, a little wacky, a little strange, you're doing it wrong. Finally, number three, Jesus' death Ultimately, Jesus' death and resurrection will win over prideful hearts and minds. And my invitation to you today is to let him win your heart. You can let him win it today, right now. This week, as I've been cycling, that's what I do for my exercise, as many of you know, I've been cycling and I'm listening to a book called The Emotionally Healthy Leader. Great book. Man, I'm loving it. And um, I listened to about two, hour, uh, two and a half hours of it, writing. I listened to about two hours of it. And it was so good. Then I said, man, I'm going to listen to that again. So I listened to it again. Re-listened to it. And, and there's this great story in there. The, the author's name, I think, is like Peter Scarazzo or something like that. It's Italian last name. And he tells this story how he was basically an agnostic Catholic living in New York City. And a friend of his from university invited him to come to a little Pentecostal church for like a praise service. So he went as like a 21-year-old agnostic Catholic studying at New York University or something. And he goes to this little, like, small Pentecostal church. And at the end of the service, this little praise service in this Pentecostal church, a guy gets up front and makes an appeal and says, anybody that wants to give their heart to Jesus, that wants to have their sins forgiven, why don't you come forward right now? And... and in, in this book, Pete Scrasso says he couldn't, he couldn't have told you the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He didn't know anything about Scripture, he didn't, but he just knew that something in this simple message of Jesus, something in this idea that somebody died for me, somebody did something for me, and I can be free from my sin, that Passover message, that liberation message, that forgiveness message, Pete said he found himself almost involuntarily getting out of his seat and coming forward to this little Pentecostal church, and it changed the whole course of the rest of his life. Changed everything. Friends, I want to tell you, the message of the gospel does not have to be saturated with a theological sophistication. It's really just this simple. God loves you. Jesus came and did for you what you could have never done for yourself. And your job is to believe in God's faithfulness in Jesus. It's not a celebration of your faithfulness. It's not a celebration of your sanctification. It's not a celebration of your holiness. It's not a celebration of your religion. It's a celebration of who God is in Christ. He is faithful. He is awesome. And He deserves your attention. And not just your attention, but your affection, your adoration, and your worship. I wonder if there's anybody here today that wants to lavish their attention and their affection, and their worship, and their life on Jesus. Father in heaven, 
contrast, contrast, contrast. The ways of men and the ways of God. Father, today I pray that we'll get the story right. And not just today, but I pray that for some, myself included, that this might be a watershed moment, a watershed sermon, a watershed concept. That the gospel is a grand celebration of your faithfulness in Jesus. And Father, we receive that. We believe that. We accept that. Today, Father, we want to thank you for the gospel. We want to thank you for scripture and for the book of Matthew. And Father, I want to pray for those of us that have been tempted in our timidity and in our social propriety and carefulness to be a little radical to be willing to be a little weird. Here we have a Hollywood movie that is celebrating the weirdness of a faithful Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Father, may we embrace that. May we be willing to be a little strange, a little excessive, a little wasteful in the way that we live our lives and in the way that we lavish our love and affection on you. And Father, we know that at the end of the day, that's not even the big story, our love for you. The big story is your love for us. Help us, Father, today and for the rest of our lives to live in the light of your amazing and attracting love. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, amen. God bless you all. Have a great Sabbath. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul, drawing you closer to God and His will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching, and take care.